Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Saturday the 20th of July 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we try our best but fail miserably to conclude Chapter 6, Unity in Diversity. Today I have three new patrons to thank, Simon Bergstrom, Ismay Jane and Aaron Markowitz. You too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. The voting has just begun on the choice for the next Reading Group series, so it's a great time to sign up. The next Patreon-only podcast is in the production process too, and it's a proper banger. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Today is a momentous day. We've got five people on the panel. Let's start it off and introduce a newcomer to this series, but a stalwart of the previous TSSI series. It's the main man, Puya. Puya, how's it going? Um, I'm doing well, Dan. How, how about you? Loving it. Sweltering here in the hottest day of the year. Yeah, we're going to try to talk about politics today, I guess. <laughs> we'll try our best. Okay, okay. next. We have, let's go over to Sophie. Sophie in deep and hot Arizona. How hot is it over there today? Tom, you don't want to know. Uh, if you think it's hot right now in Ireland, got some news for you, buddy. How much? What is it? I mean, it's like at least 90 and it's 930 where I'm at. So, Well, we, you might have heard Derek talking there. Derek, welcome back. Hello. Let's go over to Alexi. Oh. <clears throat> That was me. Hey, what's up? This is uh, this is Lexi. I'm in some heat. <laughs> it's not as bad as Lexi. it is in Arizona, and probably not as nice as Utah. I don't actually know what the number is. Oh yeah, the dog robot is in because, heat. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. That's what I said, Tom. You all better watch out. <laughs> Today we are going to complete. The sixth chapter, Unity in Diversity. Alexi, give us a go there and tell us what the, half, the first half of the chapter was all about. Okay, this was about the united front. The, the problem essentially of once you break away from the right wing of social democracy, how do you engage in common campaigns? Because there's still an objective need for the working class to wield its potential for unity, despite the fact that its political expression is fragmented. Cool. So now he's going to get into the, he's going to talk about this problem of unity and what are, what are the contradictions involved in it. So let's have a read of this little bit here. Maybe I'll start it off. The working class objectively needs united action and united organizations. This flows from its underlying nature as a class. We saw this point already in chapter one. The proletariat is the whole class dependent on the wage fund not just the workers who happen to be currently employed, let alone any particular sector, such as industrial workers. Lacking property in the major means of production, workers need to organize collective action in order to defend their interests. That unity is strength, is therefore the elemental and indispensable basis of workers' organization. But this need encounters two contradictions. The first is that both capital and the working class are international in character. 
A central statement in the 1864 inaugural address of the First International is still unqualifiedly true today. Past experience has shown how disregard that bond of brotherhood, which ought to exist between the workmen of different countries and incite them to stand firmly by each other in all their struggles for emancipation, will be chastised by the common discomfiture of their incoherent efforts. Okay, who's going to translate that last sentence? Let's hand it over to Derek. Basically, that the immediate contradictions within a national within national interest are going to add contradictory tensions within the working class, and thus there'll be pressures to disregard, you know, the similarities between, say, the workers of the United States and the workers of, say, Guatemala. It makes all the efforts kind of incoherent because, let's say, for example, that you convince people that, that I don't know, that um, restricting immigration is actually in the local proletariat's best interest. And in the short run, it may seem to be. In doing so, you will be pitting elements of the proletariat against itself because A, parts of the proletariat have come over from other countries in the first place. B, it's not in every sector's equal interest to actually have strong immigration limits or strong tariffs. And C, capital is going to move transnationally anyway. And it's and as soon as you do that, it's going to go to another country. And if you try to restrict that in any significant means, you, you're going to end up in all kinds of problems of... Um, capitalist autarky, which usually leads to rap rapid impoverishment because of an acceleration of the decline of the rate of profits. The way I like to think of this is that the post-war class compromise, you know, the racist, sexist, class compact, nationalist class compact in the United States that, you know, set up redlining and set up all kinds of things that there was a real short-term objective interest for like a great section of the American working class and you might even say there is a medium term, like great interest in doing so because their their kids lived well. Then their grandkids are fucked. <laughs> like even in this case where there was a very there were very strong economic factors at work that made this class compromise a good decision for a large section of the working class and particularly the representatives that had the that had the ability to make the decision. And not to plug a reactionary journal, but American conservative actually like recently published something about how um, white flight wasn't all just about racism based on these trend lines, these economic trend lines that was more Marxist than most Marxists are. And it makes almost the same point that like the social compromises that created that made suburbia ever like profitable in the first place as a means for redlining and all that, that didn't last two generations. And so a lot of the run run both out of and back into the cities has mostly been economically motivated, you know, almost explicitly, not just let's get away from the brown people. I think you can um, explain it in terms of a depreciation of the fixed assets of the houses, you know, with a profitability of investment. So, you know, as the urban areas develop, you know, the ratio of, you know, the organic composition increases there and profitability falls, you know, you can start to redevelop, you can start to develop in suburbia. And then once the assets inside of a city depreciate, then, you know, you can have investments start once again. I think this also explains gentrification. But yeah, what are you saying? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I also think, well, the, the funny thing about gentrification is I was reading scientific studies about that, and it doesn't actually even hurt the local property owners unless they rent. But that was going to be hurt either way. 
because if if things don't go, I mean, I don't realize a lot of people rent, but a lot of people actually, a, a lot of the working class, more than a lot of socialists think, do own small property. Technically, like they own it from the bank. Like a house. Like a house. Yeah, like a house. It's not classical productive property, but it, it's, it's not. Pro- yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to say it's not some kind of property. It's property it is, by definition. It is property. It's just not productive property. And also, yeah, you don't really own it. Productive yeah. capital, you mean? Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people, when they say property, they're, they're not really talking about things that we might think of as personal property. And that extends to fucking domiciles, which, I don't know, the whole debate is a bit but, staggered. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird because you have a lot of people arguing that that distorts the consciousness of the working class, and maybe it does. I don't know, but anyway, the, the point in that is those assets follow patterns, and those patterns had already happened in Europe, even though Europe never had the same kind of developmental of, of suburbs. But the suburban patterns and the reversal of it actually had mirrors in European city development, and we should have seen it coming, but we didn't. Explaining that totally by white flight misses the fact that there are areas which didn't have the racial demography where it still happened, which is not to say that there isn't like both structural and even individual racism in it, particularly in the setup of redlining and all that, that there definitely was. It's just that's not actually a good explanatory mechanism to explain everything. So whenever you try to play that up, when you're talking about the class as a whole, you're going to automatically be pitting people against each other in interest in ways that's going to completely, it might make total sense in the, in the short term run, but it's going to completely shoot yourself in the foot in a generation or two. And honestly, this is, there's all kinds of both left and right compromises on these issues. I mean, I think, and I might be upsetting some people here, but Keynesianism does a lot of the same stuff on a national yeah. level. Why does Derek always think I'm a Keynesian? I don't. You're an MMTer, <laughs> but there there are Keynesian MMTers and non-Keynesian MMTers, so I have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an M- I'm not an MMTer even. I just think that their analysis on money is correct, but like I'm not a Keynesian, um, I and I don't think it's a solution. I, I might agree with that. Yeah. I might agree that they're correct about money. <laughs> Here, let, let's keep going. Anyway, we're getting a bit tr- sidelined here. I think maybe a little bit, maybe not. Let's go on. Who wants to read this yes. next uh, uh, paragraph? Uh, I can. Go on then, Derek, in a, in a I, finite time. I will read it slowly. <laughs> not an infinitesimal. <laughs> However, there are within the workers' <laughs> movement nationalist, socialist, and trade unionists loyal to the existing individual nation states. The result is a contradiction between the unity of the working class as an international class and the unity in any one country between nationalist and internationalist. The point is well made in Lenin and Zinoviev's Socialism and War. Unity with the opportunist actually means today subordinating the working class to its national bourgeoisie. Alliance with it for the purposes of oppressing other nations and of fighting for great power privileges, it means splitting the revolutionary proletariat in all countries yeah okay that's the uh, good old days that 1914 through 1918 bolshevism it's mm, tasty stuff it, it's it's funny how people seem to take the opposite conclusion when using Lenin's imperialism now except that they do they do keep on to the great power criticism but not the rest of the stuff about splitting about subordinating the working class to a national bourgeoisie who are you talking about when you say that derek most marxist leninist well, do you mean specifically their analysis on, you know, quote unquote, the third world or just in well, general? Well, not just that. Like it, there's this in general thing that they have, for example, 
in all nations but like the the quote unquote core that comprador bourgeoisie are worse than national bourgeoisie so they basically say that the the international bourgeoisie is worse than the national bourgeoisie cause reasons and imperialism and this is specifically right. and explicitly justified in Maoism, where they say that the contradictions of imperialism are greater than the comp than the contradictions of capitalism. Yeah, I knew that about mm -hmm. Maoism, but I, that's kind of surprising to hear about MLs, but I guess I don't talk to enough MLs, which is... Well, the MLs are all affected with Maoism now anyway. I mean, like the difference between what, like, for example, what, what groups do we think of in the United States that are still MLs? Well, yeah, PSL comes to mind, but they are definitely influenced by Maoism as well. I, I yeah. get what you mean. Yeah, every group with like the, the CPU, I say that I think like Lenin and Stalin versus Mao, are obvious. there's obviously some differences, but in practice, what we consider, the difference between what we consider your garden variety ML and your garden variety Maoist is different. Is not that different. Somebody is touching their mic. I don't know if it's you, Derek. I can't touch my mic. Who knows? I'm, I, 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 I might be losing it. I actually have got a near infection i've got tinnitus so i am hearing like oh, wow. I, I went to the i went to the doctors and i was at the receptionist and i just rang up to say like can i have an appointment and she said yeah if you come quick you can get one straight away so i cycled up there and i i got there and i went up to the woman and the at the desk and i said uh oh i'm here for the appointment she said oh it's tom o'brien is it and i said yeah and what's wrong with you and i said well i'm hearing noises in my ear and she looked at me like she's like oh fuck this guy is gone <laughs> he's gone schizo <laughs> like you're at the wrong clinic i mean these psychiatrist offices down the street i know and i was like no 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 it's like i got like a kind of a whistly sound in my ear and she was like oh that's that's all right okay <laughs> oh yeah. god that's funny. Okay, let's move on a wee bit. The next section he's going to get through into the second contradiction that he's going to get into, which is basically the character of how political parties under capitalism work and what that means for organizing and strategy. Okay, so uh, let's, Apuya, let's have a go here. You read the first paragraph there if you can. The second contradiction is a little more difficult to explain. We can take it at a high level of abstraction or much more concretely. An abstraction, a workers' organization, whether trade union, party, or whatever, is not an unconscious organic unity like a family, clan, or peasant village. It is a consciously created unity which grows out of, negates, slash preserves the individualism of modern capitalist society. In this aspect, it foreshadows a future freely associated producers of socialism. But to be consciously created unity, it must be it must inherently be a unity in diversity. An agreement to unite for partial common ends while recognizing the diverse individual uh, opinions and wills. It is indeed the partial convergence of the individual opinions and wills which form the basis of a possibility of a consciously created unity. So I'm reading actually Marx's critique of politics, Gary Teeple's book, and he's going into some of the Marx's early works. And this sounds like it's directly taken out of that book. It's quite a Galen in his language here. I think I know where you're getting here. It's a kind of like integration without engulfment. That is this higher form of freedom that preserves organic unity and the individualism of modern society. It's not an unconscious organic unity, I, I suppose, is in his language. In, in that early work, Marx, in, in the stuff I'm reading there, Marx is getting towards this idea of an organic unity where things aren't disparate. disparate. Your own individualism is reflected in the totality. Right. That's 
why Marx thinks communism is like the synthesis or whatever. It's the future because it allows the individual and the and the society to basically form a, a, a like a unity, and they're not they're not opposed to each other like in bourgeois society. Let's keep going. Like all of this stuff is, is pretty good. I think this is very good analysis. How about Sophie? Do you want to take these two paragraphs? Sure. This dialectic of individual and consciously creative collective necessarily entails the possibility of collectives within the collective where, as is inevitable, there come to be disagreements within the larger collective. At the level of the concrete, a worker's organization of any size and geographical extent cannot run under capitalism on the basis of a pure distinction of tasks from meeting to meeting among members who do them in their free time. In the first place, the capitalists simply do not give workers enough free time except in the form of pauperizing and demoralizing unemployment. In the second place, though we seek to make everyone a worker leader, worker manager, or worker intellectual, synonyms, call them what you will, in fact, our ability under capitalism to overcome the petty proprietor intelligentsia monopoly of education and managerial administrative skills is limited. In practice, we have to have full-timers. And these are neither members of the intelligentsia managerial middle class, petty proprietors of intellectual property by background, or if they organize as workers, become intelligentsia by training as full-timers. Full-time office itself can, moreover, be a type of property in the form of privileged access to information. These three paragraphs really stood out to me when I read because it reminds me a lot of like my experience in organizing, especially with like anarchists. And he kind of gets more into like a, a critique of anarchism a little later. With any kind of working class organization, regardless of like what ideology, this is a dynamic that's really hard to control for. And I think it's what's what you could extrapolate from this is kind of how the dialectic of like the individual and the collective how that's kind of like foreshadowing the future society. This also kind of foreshadows some future problems you're going to have. Because I think that's something you saw in like the early Soviet Union where this dichotomy between, well, it wasn't just the early Soviet Union, but the, the dichotomy between, you know, quote, skilled workers or whatever versus unskilled workers comes to fruition and can create a class or maybe a pseudo class situation within that society. And so we're, we have like a mini microcosm of this, but what actually makes it worse in a capitalist society is that capitalism supports these divisions. It, it kind of feeds into that, if that makes any sense. And so he's highlighting like a really huge problem and contradiction within workers' organizations. And they don't stop when you get out of quote unquote capitalist societies either. I mean, that's one of the great debates between like all the different theories of the Soviet Union's collapse, which was pinned at the beginning, that you still had all this technical expertise and there really was kind of a new class around that. What I, what I fail to understand though, and you peeps can help inform me on this, how are these contradictions dealt with by the ideological allegiances that he's talking about? Because they seem fundamentally different. What do you mean by that? Well, the whole left-right, left-right-center orientation of the various worker communist movements, not workers' movements here, doesn't really deal with this question in any meaningful sense. McNair, even though he's coming from this like uh, Leninist background, has a respect for the councilists and the council communists because their emphasis on undermining this dynamic, their hypersensitivity to the idea that organizational assets are part of class 
Yeah, uh, I don't know how I feel about this. Like he's talking about intelligentsia as a class. I don't, I don't it, know if I really like that because, like, does my professor is he a petty proprietor because he knows some differential equations? You know, I don't. <laughs> I don't really think so. It's not necessarily. I, I guess when I said skill earlier, and I, I use scare quotes with that, but even then, like, that's not really the proper way to conceptualize it. What what can potentially make somebody who's, you know, part of the intelligentsia middle class or petite bourgeois petty proprietor or whatever is... They sell their books. Yeah, like rents, basically. Yeah. Um, it, you could even, like, uh, uh, you know, I do streaming, right? And so that's even that is kind of like a form of that in a sense. It's like a, a renting out of entertainment. Although, obviously, I'm not making pretty proprietor money doing that, but you get the you get the gist of it, right? Well, I mean, yeah, and I also think a portion of your income goes to whatever streaming service you have, right? Yeah, but that's true. That's true point. in any situation. I mean, like, that's, that's even true for, like, classical capitalists. They lose stuff to other capitalists. I mean, like, this actually is this is a problem and it's a problem in Marxist class analysis in general, where you want to say, well, professors and stuff are wage earners. If so facto, they are proletarian, except they do kind of own, they do kind of have the capacity to reproduce what they do without the wage through a system of complicated rent. What is that exactly? So if just given less IP, um, you can, you can go directly with this, I mean, technically what we're doing right now is petty proprietorship. I mean, and saying that it's not because, you know, Google takes some fees or does advertising is also be saying, like, because the Internet takes advertising for Google, they don't count either. It doesn't work. Like, I think here, like, we're getting into kind of technical discussions about this from a capitalist point of view, from like a capital of Marxist capitalist point of view. But like, I think what he's making here is a point is not in a capital sense, but he's talking in a in a more of a power sense that like certain intelligentsia will have by nature of their skill will have a social power. Now, that power is not it's not like, you know, it's this idea. I hate the term, but like social capital. They might be able to convince more people to do stuff because they've got better analysis or stuff. But it, it's not like they're making money on it. You know, it's just showing mean, that there's a power differential. You may hate yeah, trying to get at. Capital, but when you organize, it is a real fucking thing. I mean, oh, yeah. 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 I think it's real, but I'm not. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm saying that it is real, but we're not talking about it. In it's a, a it's a money thing. No, 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 no. You're right. It You're may right. be, but yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like, I, I don't I think you want to get extreme circumstance if it's about money, but yeah, yeah. in reality, it's about power. Power. And basically, yeah. the, the general gist of what McNair is getting at here is that the people who could be leaders in workers' organizations generally have enough resources to be able to spend a lot of time doing that. Whereas, if workers who are dependent on earning a wage to survive devote that same amount of time, they're most likely either going to burn out or they are going to lose their job. Yeah, and this was true historically, too. I mean, we, we talked about this last time that almost that the leadership of of almost all the socialist parties until they're fully instantiated almost can't be working class because it's a full-time job. And and McNair actually goes into this. He, he's basically validating the anarchist critique, but then saying the anarchist solution which is what, like, for example, the IWW does. The anarchist solution is to say, okay, there's no full-timers and everyone's volunteer. Well, what happens? 
no one can commit to do anything competently. Or there are de facto power relations that anarchists tend to ignore. And that's like one of my biggest problems being an anarchist, a former anarchist who organized with anarchists, this was rampant. And it tends to lead to like petty mini sectlets within, or at least it did in, in my area, mini sectlets of anarchists who all hate each other. And like one minute they, they all hate each other. The next minute they're like, oh, we need to like work together and set aside our differences. And, and really it's just people pointing fingers at other anarchist quote unquote leaders, even though they're not leaders. Yeah. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping Lexi can mm -hmm. chime in on this because we've actually dealt with this in a real organization. But one of the theories behind McNair's critique here that I think was interesting, but I've never actually seen work, mm -hmm. is that the full-timers have to be um, democratically accountable so that they can be recalled and disciplined by the membership if they go overboard because we still need them. And that's, I mean, like, that's the, the idea here is like, Instead of the, you know, the tyranny of structurelessness or the, you know, the domination of the petty bourgeois, you have to have an accountable organization to actually do this. And I don't, here, McNair doesn't deal with it, but Lexi and I really thought about this. When most of these organizations that talk this way, when you go to do anything, they structurally work the same way as all other. You know, I think it's just of any type of society that has any level of complexity to it, you've got division of labor. And with division of labor, you're going to run into this problem. doesn't matter how you do it. You just want mechanisms for reducing the excess or for basically having full control taken away from those people in positions of power. Like how many of these truck groups have like executive committees that basically the only way you get removed from them is you die. And yeah. they just determine pr the strategy, five or seven or eight people, determine the strategy of that sect until it implodes. Well, you, you got to imagine that a lot of these truck groups are very small. There's some validity to anarchist critique and like kind of organic sort of Bordigas thought that when you have a small enough group, decision making doesn't necessarily need to be as formally bound by democratic checks, at least to produce decent results, what have you. And when you try to establish these decision making things on a small scale, where everyone's decisions like have a, like a large weight, more or less. Anything that you are trying to prevent can take hold very easily. And that's also true when you scale way up, when you have, you know, something like, I, I, this is kind of a stretch, but like a democratic party or a presidential election, you know, the institutions warp everything. There's a bunch of dynamics about who even bothers to participate. So I think, but what he's describing is, at best, practicable within a certain threshold that most left groups don't actually get to. And if they do get to, you don't actually see mass democracy because they, they don't, they've learned as small groups that were successful enough to blossom and get big, basically to avoid democratic accountability. <laughs> <laughs> and those types of people do not like to segue towards it's just against their it's against why they're there those positions select out people that are willing to relinquish control to a democratic body so this, this is an elaborate argument to say that i think this might work if it could be tried but there's a lot of reasons that it never really it, it's 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 never implemented in a project that's important enough if you ask me, this point that we're making here is the reason why the DSA took off and all these other ones didn't, because it's yes closer no. to this. Yes and no, yeah. but the DSA is not exactly. 
Well, well, but the DSA National isn't accountable to its members at all. It's not. Yeah, but but think yeah. about what happens when somebody in in you're sitting in the middle of Tallahassee or somewhere, and is you want to be a socialist, and you say, "Oh, let me check out my DSA chapter," and you go there, and people are people aren't like iron discipline <laughs> MLs. Or whatever, the people are just like going, yeah, I kind of like Bernie or this, that, and the other, and it kind of feels right, and that's why it grows. It does talking- until it does. Yeah, here's a difference though, Tom. I've actually been to these meetings, and so their steering committees end up getting dominated by the same groups that were sectarians and private. I mean, so that's one thing. They change their bylaws so that this can happen for another. And on the third thing, the national committee is remarkably stable, remarkably unaccountable. It's very hard for any for any one group to unseat any of those people. They're only accountable to each other, which means that it looks like it functions this way. But in practice, it really doesn't at all. It functions very similar to the way coalitions of sectarian groups functioned before, except now they're not calling themselves coalitions of sectarian groups. They're calling themselves the DSA. No, fair enough. But I like, and I totally take those critiques on point, but I'm talking about like why it, why it bloomed. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think so. But then there's also the oppositionist to Trump element to why it bloomed, which does complicate that. Yeah, it's probably a mix of, of these factors, but like, why did they all go there than the PSL or some other ISO also, or something? The, uh, DSA is much more right-wing than a communist party. That, not yeah, not the American Communist USA. Party. Yeah, the, the American Communists <laughs> are actually... They, they were yeah, like, yeah. Bernie's unrealistic. We have to support Hillary in the in the primary. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's the left the I, I mean, like an right. actual... Like like a like a yeah. like an actual communist party, like a real communist party. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, point sure. taken. I mean, the DSA would be the right of the McNair's right-left Marxist spectrum for the most yeah. I think part. you're yeah. right. Just just to kind of give like another counter example to like the DSA in Red Necrofault, there was this kind of a, an attempt at this, but the the key difference is that because Red Necrofault was you know while it was nominally non-sectarian, it was in practice an anarchist organization. You had leadership positions, but they revolved around doing specific tasks. And you still have this dynamic where it was the people who had the ability to do this, that kind of work, who always ended up taking those positions. What was interesting was that it generally wasn't necessarily petty proprietors. There were usually women who did all the unattractive administrative work they already had a lot of shit going on on their plate and they did kind of experience a lot of burnout in a lot of cases. And then when things went wrong, they were the ones who people would get mad at generally. Mm -hmm. But the issue with that is that these people in these leadership positions had no real authority. They were just elected to do specific tasks. And I think in some ways that might've been useful, but in other ways it kind of, it hurt, hurt the organization as a whole because when people were acting really shitty, there wasn't a whole lot anyone could do about it. And that was kind of my problem with it as I was leaving. My biggest problem, ultimately, was that all these tanks shouldn't be here. And if you would stop being such an anarchist for a second, maybe we could kick them out, you know? But I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to echo, I wanted to like actually call back the IWW because the IWW did have a debate internally about full-timers, like a hundred years after, you know, syndicalism is like, they're like lifeblood 
when they started doing some successful union efforts in some service industry places around some like new left hotspots, it's kind of sui generis stuff. It's not totally exportable, but you know, they did organize a few workplaces, the IWW, and they did it on the basis of full-timers and they did it on the basis of getting, you know, labor contracts, something that the IWW also always opposed. So you can see that even when the IWW isn't officially anarchist, but they're certainly the most prominent organization of like labor anarchism or social anarchism and syndicalism, which has overlaps with anarchism. Like when that organization takes its own problems seriously, it comes to Marxist conclusions. It's something that emerges out of taking the problem seriously. And, and I think what McNair is saying here and something that the, the councilists stumbled upon as well is that we're not just talking about power. This is actually an element of class. This is part of class. And if you read um, Eric Olin Wright, he has these like institutional assets and this sort of authority as part of his class, one of the ingredients in class, as one of the important vectors that alters, you know, how property relations affect uh, agency. This is important. It, and it's, imp it's important for Marxist reasons. It's not just anarchism. It's not just a critique of power. This is a kind of asset that somebody can lord over somebody else in any kind of, in, in, in many class societies, but especially technological class societies, as Tom says. It's really interesting you brought up the IWW because when I was giving these criticisms of Rudnick Revolt before I left, I, the IWW was actually brought up a, as an example. And from what I remember how it was described to me, it sounded like this kind of McNair idea of democratic accountability. It, it essentially evolved <laughs> like accountability of, of like leadership how the alternative, there has to be some kind of middle ground between hyper-anarchism where everybody is just free to do whatever they want, which is not what most anarchists don't want, versus like call-out culture being used as a bludgeon for political opportunists. That's the political economy of call-out culture, yeah. <laughs> one, one thing I wanted to get back to slightly was the point that Derek was making about how these organizations end up in the DSA, say, end up working in real life is that you get like the more dedicated, say, becoming into these committee positions of powers. And most probably with the sound of it from Derek, a lot of these people have come out of, you know, trust or ML groups. So to me, there's like a historical, cultural way of politicking in those groups that honestly, that has to just kind of die. I feel like I'm hoping that all these type of sects will slowly die and that style of operation, that kind of memory, organizational memory will be lost. Like just looking at, say, Irish politics at the moment, right? I was looking at some of the polls there the other day. The civil war in Ireland was like, what, 1921. It's nearly 100 years. OK, and if you look at Irish society, it's only now but it's the two main parties that were for the civil war parties Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael were both kind of centre-right parties and they used to get about 80% of the vote between the two of them and it's only now a hundred years later that those two together are down to about 50% which is probably more like standard for most European countries where the right-left divide is is taking effect like so there is this organisational memory of all these organisations and truck groups and ML groups and Maoist groups and 
whatever type of groups. Like it literally might take a hundred years <laughs> of death of those existing things before the new thing can bloom. Is that too depressing? <laughs> I think I you know what? Having seen the new wave of small bean Stalinists, I think that this isn't gonna simply die out. But I mean, like, it, for real, like, if if we saw small bean, and I'm not saying that they're morally yes. equivalent or anything, but if we saw small bean Nazis come up, then the fact that we see yeah. small bean Stalinists tells me there's some kind of historical echo here that we haven't really dealt with. And I, I, mean, I am going to just point out that ML-friendly media, while there's less of it, is kind of popular right now amongst mm -hmm. leftoids, including within the DSA itself. Yes, it's true, because... People have gotten lost in history again, and so they've faced, you know, the, the Kautskyists and the Mensheviks, and so where do they turn? Right, yeah. but they want to stay in the Kautskyists and Menshevik groups is what I don't understand. So you... you I mean, what what I, media are you talking about? Marxist Center. What media? All right. What media? Look, go and look at Patreon downloads for for socialist podcast and you will see that the largest patreon base outside of the professionally produced ones out of new york is revolutionary left radio now mm -hmm. that is not just a marxist leninist podcast i don't want to disparage it in that way but it is the most uncritical and most kind to them and it is the largest second tier podcast on the left right now First tier is all professionally produced, mostly out of New York or tied to magazines. It's like Majority Report, Michael Brooks, Chapo, and Chapo. all that. Right. But the second tier podcast, which are the people in like the 500 to 1,000 Patreons, and you're going to multiply their listenership by a factor of 10. And I mean, I know that because I'm I, like, I work for a podcast that's in that tier. That's the largest one right now. So there's not as many, though. I mean, this is the other thing. There, uh, as far as the other left-wing podcasts, there's like 50,000 ranging from left-com all the way to normal democratic socialists to various trot groups have their podcast. And there's like only a couple of ML ones, so it might be a, a function of concentration, but it's a real thing. And a lot of the groups that were designed, who weren't designed by MLs, I mean, the, one of the funniest things in history, you mentioned the, the PSL. They have erased their own history as a Trotskyist party. I mean, that that's like something that everybody who's been in this game kind of knows and nobody knows from right now. The, the SWP, the official organ of the Fourth International, did the same thing in the United States under Sam Marcy. Yeah. And, wow. And, well, I, I didn't know this. That's crazy. The, the PSL and the WWP are descended from that explicitly. And one of the things that got me worried about this book, honestly, when I read it, I brought it up several times, is that McNair thought that the Marcyites were one of the best forms of Trotskyism. And it was under the auspices of their willingness to try to bridge the gap with other forms. And their descendants in the United States are what now? Well, he doesn't think they're the only best. I mean, honestly, he mentions two groups, the Sparts and the Tro and the Marcyites. And the Sparts are the most sectarian and also most anti-imperial, but they're the most sectarian group. And then the Marcyites tried to bridge. They basically had this theory that most of the divisions that separated Stalinists from Trotskyists were no longer applicable after the 1970s. And so reaching out to Maoists and then to other MLs would be a, a way to like rebridge, 
get everybody back into the same tent and um, more importantly in some ways to um the theoretical reason for this is a little bit vague to me but it started off with the defense of cuba and then started spreading so first we needed to defend cuba then we needed to make a common allegiance with with other post-1968 forms of socialism, most many of which were anti-revisionist or ML. So we need to make concessions because those distinctions don't matter, particularly when fighting U.S. imperialism, because U.S. imperialism is the most important issue. And so like critical military support for, say, North Korea became critical support for North Korea, became just support for North Korea. And the core of the leadership of these Marcy descended parties actually erased their historical relevance to Trotskyism and embraced the anti, I mean, they literally took 1940s Communist Party propaganda, um, anti-revisionist propaganda and made it their educational program. Think about who these people were reacting to, right? There's a kind of Trotskyism that tends towards social democratic reform, a sort of humanist Trotskyism. And unfortunately, Max Schachman, who was a great Trotskyist at one point, drifts in this direction to the point where like, he, effectively, he supports the Vietnam War. Right, right. he uh, supports the Vietnam War, enters the, S- the SPA, and is effectively the reason why the SPA dissolved, creating the precursor to the DSA and the current SPUSA. Right, and so these are the trots that like the new atheists evolved yeah, and like a couple of them actually became explicit neocons. Only one or two of them, that, that tendency tends to be exaggerated, but it did happen. So they're responding to that. Now, what McNair says, and this seems to come out in the early 2000s in relationship to him doing this in the 90s, and the, there's a background to his own group here. The, the CPGBP Provisional Committee, PCI. PCC? PCC. Yeah. PCP? Anyway, <laughs> whatever is PCP. That's that good stuff, Tom. You gotta, you gotta be puffing on that for sure. Yeah, no, because I remember I used to play this like drug, drug game. It was like some really basic Unix character-based game, and you could buy P- PCP. <laughs> nice. PCP oh does interesting things. But, the, but Derek, yeah, well, personal experience. <laughs> um, not personally, but I've seen it. The funny thing about this, though, is, I mean, like, the, this group is a split from an anti-revisionist party. So they actually kind of went in the other direction. So I just I always thought it was min- interesting that he mentions neo-Marcyites, because I'm wondering, and this I just don't know, if they went, if they had a completely different trajectory as a microsect in Britain than they did in the United States. I don't know. Because basically the journey that the CPG, uh, CPGB comes out of is the opposite journey. Like they basically were, were anti-revisionists. They made common cause with some trots and it ended up being their own thing. I will say we've kept the microsect analysis down for most of this so far, but that was like 20, 20 minutes hardcore microsect. So that's, that's it for oh. today. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like I'm sected out. <laughs> Um, I, I feel you, but uh, anyway, so that's the history of American Trotskyism. Yeah, I wanted to I start think... a, a podcast called The Joy of Sex, but it's already been hey. taken. Well, you should, it's... you know, you should do, we, we should, we should do more. We've uh, <laughs> been leaving, leaving that aside. We should do more Joy of Sex. I would love to do that. I, I told you guys about the uh, about a book. It was in when I was studying maths. It was in the, the maths library. It was called The Joy of Sets. 
That was that was one of my favorites. Yeah, that's lovely. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats.